0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the change world around us and how we can make it better, brought to you by Climate Change Realty. All right, all right, all right. Well, hello, everyone. We are back for another episode of Changing the Climate. I am very, very excited to have my guests Alyssa Harding. Alyssa is the secretary of Naturally Boulder, a nonprofit and economic development initiative to bring together Colorado's natural products community. She also works as the operations and packaging collaborative director of One Step Closer, an extended community formed to create positive change, and is the director of member experience at Sustainable Brands, a news outlet seeking to inspire businesses to lead the way to a sustainable, abundant future. Alyssa, thank you so much for being here this week.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Ethan.
0: Yeah, it's my absolute pleasure, and I always love to just get started hearing a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be where where you are today, and all all the different things that you've been up to.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely been juggling a few things over the past few years, but I'd say its inception was, you know, from an early age, I was very much motivated by an intrinsic love of the environment. So, when time came to select a program to do my undergraduate around, I selected agricultural ecology and. I'm originally from Florida. I went to the University of Florida, the Gators, um, and as I moved through that process, really developed an affinity for sustainable food systems. So upon graduation, felt a little stagnant in Florida and wanted to move to a more progressive area, so put some feelers out across the country, but ultimately uprooted my life to Colorado where I knew no one <laughs> and started working done. for a small nonprofit there and kind of grew from that point. And, um, I would say, you know, a big turning point in my career was my my role at Justin's, the nut butter company, and um, I had applied, actually, for a very entry-level position, but my experience before that was heavily rooted in operations. I had been writing for an environmental science magazine, volunteering with a ton of Um, water-based conservation nonprofits, and so when I went to apply kind of laid all that on the table and they were like wow you're overqualified for this and we want you to do this other job that no one has ever done before and lo and behold my first stint in corporate social responsibility so I did that for about three years Um, built all their programs from the ground up everything from pollinator conservation and the California almond orchards to circular packaging efforts um, and then finding ways to engage our employees in that as well. And then slowly but surely um, grew my network within the sustainable food system sector, Um, joined the Sustainable Food Trade Association as their executive director, um, where we were really focused on basically creating tools and solutions for natural products, natural and organic product companies to be more sustainable. Um, So we did everything from materiality assessments and climate action planning and obviously thought leadership opportunities that were aggregating the impact of our members. And so, um, gosh, I guess that was just at the beginning of this year. And then a lot more has happened since then with COVID. Sure. So um, I've been engaged with the OSC community for the past few years. Laura Dickinson, their founder and director, and I go way back to my aspirational days at Justin's where I was throwing together sustainable brand summits and trying to you know, mobilize action in natural products companies in Colorado. And Um, have been supporting them in a part-time role running their compostable packaging collaborative. And then most, most recently, (laughs) just received an invitation to join the team at Sustainable Brands to help them do a lot of similar things, right? To really work with their members, find opportunities for collaboration, identify where they're at in their sustainable brand journey, and help them move forward. So in a nutshell, that's me.
0: Yeah, and that's a lot to unpack, so I'm sure we'll get into each individual thing as as time goes on. What is the difference between a sustainable food and a non-sustainable food?
1: Well, I mean, systemically, there's a lot of different variables to unpack there, and so... Yeah. If you're just thinking about supply chain that's a big part right how much does renewable energy fit into your portfolio how much plastic is in your packaging you know where are you sourcing your food from right is this an organic a certified organic product is it non-gmo or are you more on the conventional side of things so those are just a few tenants that we can rattle off off the top of my head
0: definitely sorry i just got a little phone call um so where did this this mission you have to drive institution, institutional change through sustainability, where do you think this came from? Is it, is it something in your childhood or through your study over the years of these practices?
1: Yeah, I think it's a, a bit of both. You know, as a child, we... Moved all across the country with my mom and always always made time to go to national parks and go on hiking excursions and even when we lived in Florida, we had three acres and a big swamp in our backyard, so I was always out there climbing trees, getting bark in my eyes, you know trying to avoid the alligators um, and then I think that just grew once I got into my agricultural ecology program because it was just so fascinating, and especially for me, like hydrogeology, like the study of like water and people, was especially interesting just how unique the spring systems in Florida were. And um, I actually wrote a capstone paper on large scale irrigation in the high plains around sustainable ag. So I think that was probably the catalyst that really started driving this food system development.
0: That's amazing. I definitely want to get into um, sustainable ag because I really know nothing about it. And I think it would be very beneficial for my listeners to hear. But before we talk about that, I would just like to talk about the just the broad idea of corporate social responsibility in general, because I know Kind of, a lot of people think the way the economic system works is businesses derive profit and pay their shareholders. And that's kind of what has been like the big, I don't know, the big way of doing business since the nineties and math layoffs and all these other things. And I think this transition to focusing more on stakeholder value, like they teach at the lead school of business, obviously it just, it just makes a lot more sense. So would you like to just explain what the idea of Caesar or corporate social responsibility is?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you touched on it, right? Like shareholder primacy doesn't serve anybody except for the shareholders. So when we think about conscious business, that's definitely a shift. Even they're unhappy. Yeah, (laughs) right. And it's a shift towards stakeholder capitalism and conscious capitalism is what we call it. And so I'm sure, you know, you've heard of the triple bottom line, right? Like people, profit, planet. Planet.
0: We're also Mm -hmm. hearing
1: now the quadruple bottom line, throwing purpose into that mix because I know, right? It all <laughs> continuous improvement always, um, but really, it just boils down to how do you govern your company? What is your company's purpose? How are you producing your products and service? And how are you using your brand voice for advocacy? There's so many avenues where companies can take to be a force for good, and especially, I mean, I would say over the past few years, and even more so now with COVID as nonprofits are seeing a reduction in funding as municipalities are struggling to deliver their core services businesses can now step in as a real force for good and that could be intersectional environmentalism diversity and inclusion climate action or even just like community empowerment so there's, there's a lot of different pathways that you can take. And the idea too, to illustrate the ROI and make the business case for sustainability is tying it to the foundations of your company. So if you're a tech company who's sourcing heavy metals from perhaps like a region in Africa, there are empowerment programs you can do at the ground on your supply chain, or like for Justin's, for example, you know, sourcing all of our almonds from the California almond orchards, there are pollinator conservation, water conservation, and additional empowerment programs we can do in the those key areas
0: really cool so I'm I'm very into the work of Simon Sinek have you ever heard of him
1: yeah we covered him a lot in I guess all three of my degree programs
0: oh he's amazing and so I read his most recent book called the infinite game and it's it's this theory by someone some game theory where there's these finite games and these infinite games so a finite game is like baseball or soccer like the time runs out and then whoever has the most goals wins and that's kind of the way that most businesses think about their businesses. As much as we can get to the bottom line, we win. But then there's the theory of the infinite game where you just, the point of the game is not to to win, but to just stay in the game. So businesses are just uh, collaborations of people who have the same values that are looking to achieve a mission. And I just think it's, it's, very, it's very interesting. And if you think about the, the companies that have stayed around the longest or that are very successful for a long time, Microsoft, Apple. We'll see what happens with Amazon. I don't know, because they've been pretty militaristic with their rise. But just this idea that they're holding true to their values, because people buy what what you why you do it rather than what you do. Well that's just interesting. Um, do you want to talk about your experience with Naturally Boulder a bit?
1: Yeah. Yeah, naturally Boulder, I've been on the board now for about three years, but I've been involved with them for longer. Um, And it's great because they're a nonprofit trade association that's really trying to foster sustainable entrepreneurship and regenerative business models in the natural product sector. And so when I say natural products, that's like kind of like the granola, like feel good, like CPG industry, consumer packaged goods. So this can be everything from like food to beauty to household, but all of them are united by a mission-driven foundation, and so naturally Boulder, um, you know, has had a few different value propositions over time. But mostly, we're about connectivity and like shared learnings. And so, what we do throughout the years, we bring people together with, you know, networking nights and morning mingles and education events. But we also have really great forums that allow for like a smaller group of people to really connect and collaborate and learn from each other. And I run our sustainability forum. And just last year, you know, as a board, we worked together and we realized like, wow, you know, climate climate action and climate change is something we really need to lean in on. If we're saying we're mm-hmm. promoting sustainable entrepreneurship and these regenerative practices, we need to take a stand. So you know, kind of the first rollout of that was some shared climate programming with one of our affiliate partners, Naturally Austin. And so we did a three-part series, one that I led on packaging, and then we've also adopted a few other climate resources um, within our community and created a Climate Catalyst Award in our annual awards sector to really highlight the leaders who are, you know, have the capacity to share their best practices and elevate the rest of the industry towards a shared goal.
0: Can you, can you talk a little bit about packaging in general? Cause it seems like I'm uh, obviously, I'm very focused on the climate issue. It's, I don't see a solution to what the way we distribute things. Like I have someone coming from, what's it like the bulk, there's like a bulk food store where you can go in and like fill up your cup or whatever. I am having her come on next week and talk about her business, but we send out, like I or talked about with, have you ever heard of Joshua and Nisco? He's, a, he's the founder of Pangea Organics. It's like
1: Yeah. Yeah. We actually yeah. did tree planting at his property, I think it was like three years ago for Earth Day.
0: Yeah, no, he's really cool and we had an awesome conversation. But I don't see a way around these plastic tubs that I get full of protein powder or the cardboard boxes that deliver my skincare products, which are in plastic containers. What, do you, what kind of future do you see in packaging to actually make it like sustainable or even like regenerative in general? I don't know.
1: Yeah. And that's something we talk about a lot is like the regenerative capacity of packaging. And we're not there yet, but we're getting there. Yeah. And I would tell you too, like for OSC, our scope and our focus is to reduce plastic pollution through the proliferation of plant-based materials. And so Hmm. we're very much focused on scaling compostable, certified compostable packaging. And for us, the kind of Achilles heel of our industry is flexible film. So if you think about, like, the bag that your protein powder comes in or, like, the cliff bar that's wrapped in a plastic wrapper. And so we're just thinking about, okay, we need to identify a lot of things. Packaging has to do a lot. And I think that's what makes it so difficult is a package has to protect your product and maintain the quality and communicate certain things to your consumers that are, you know, regulated by the government. And so there's all of these different pieces that has to – contain, but it also needs to be sustainable because it just doesn't seem to match up with the mission of an organic food company to say, Mm -hmm. we put all of this thought into the ingredients, but we're wrapping it in a piece of plastic that will basically be in the environment forever. Mm -hmm. So for us, Mm -hmm. even though there's a challenge right now behind composting infrastructure, we think that if we can switch to plant-based packaging, that the packaging that we know does escape into the environment, right? 9% of plastics ever created have been recycled. That's like a stat a lot of us are familiar with. And think about how much of that ends up in the landfill, how much of it ends up in the environment. And if those were plant-based packages, they would actually be able to biodegrade in the environment. And I say biodegrade, but that's not like the biodegradability standard. That's two completely different things, but it'd be able to break down And then there's also the capacity to have soil degradable and marine degradable packaging. And those are still sort of in the innovation pipeline and aren't fully scaled yet. But there's a lot of opportunity there to really like give back to the system, which is, you know, the core of regeneration, rather than continuing to extract it on like a model that's been optimized for pricing and efficiency at the expense of negative externalities of the resource
0: use facts but at the same time we can't ignore these pricing efficiencies because i i want solutions and i want them today but we i'm not going to get them unless they're actually realistic and that means working with both sides of the field and understanding that people want to make money and stuff is mm-hmm. i know that like could we use like seaweed or something because i've seen like plastic yeah. made out of seaweed and stuff and there's a lot of seaweed isn't there
1: definitely and actually patagonia did a case competition i think two years ago that i attended and there was a few graduate students who suggested this, that, just that, and there's also potential there to revitalize coastal communities around the growth and production of, like, seaweed and algae, which is, like, very cool, so that's definitely one, Um, but I would say the application varies, because when you have food packaging, there are a ton of regulatory requirements you have to adhere to, there's also the fact that whenever, exactly, to keep people safe, and then there's also the fact that when you have different types of product, and this is like going into a little bit the science behind it, but like yeah. you have barrier requirements. And so, what does the auction barrier look like? What does the moisture barrier look like? Like the evaporation, because all of this due diligence around a new material, if ultimately your product isn't deliverable, that's not a success and that's not scalable and so you know the work of osc is basically aggregating a lot of shared learning we work with clemson university on shelf life studies of different basically packaging structures and see directionally if they meet those barrier requirements We also work with haulers. We just had a composter lunch and learn to really understand the barriers of accepting compostable packaging. Because right now there's no distinction between like a compostable wrapper and a regular wrapper. They both look like wrappers to a composter sitting in a big bulldozer 20 feet in the air. And so the struggle is you know we have to bridge the gap between all of the stakeholders right across the value chain and we work obviously we have material providers who are like our partners in all of this and the nice thing about that is we've been working with them since the inception of the packaging collaborative and they offer material discounts there's a possibility too for the folks who share similar structures to aggregate their purchasing power to actually make it more affordable, more comparable to a conventional plastic. But I think the thing with pricing is, like I mentioned, it's a negative externality. Plastic has been optimized, the system of plastic has been optimized to just produce, 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 Urgent plastic everywhere. The recovery is really poor. And so when you have a system that's so cheap artificially, how do you incentivize people to pay more for a product that truly reflect, reflects the cost of that resource.
0: Yeah, I think it is a lot about this idea of of shifting people's mindsets and making them understanding. One of the analogies that Jeremy Epstein, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago, used as far as carbon emissions is that we're it's like we're swiping a credit card and we're going to have to pay back this debt eventually. Yeah. But the more and more we use it, we just keep racking up this debt. And there's, you know, I talk about the Great Pacific garbage patch. And that's been there since, two, since when at least 2009. Yeah, it's how How do you deal with this? Like you're doing all this amazing work, but like, how do you deal with like the timeline of it when you know that like we need to do more like today, today, today?
1: Yeah, it's definitely like a Sisyphusian struggle. You're pushing the rock up the hill, and you do it yeah. because you have to, right? For right. those of us yeah. who are so motivated. That. Um, but I think, like I said, there's a lot of potential right now in business, and I think too in trends and producer responsibility because I feel like a lot of the the onus is shifted to the consumer of like oh you need to recycle oh you need to buy this. Well, when your options are limited, what are you going to do? And so I think too like through the Climate Collaborative, who is a partner of OSC and also SFTA in my previous life, you know they're also mobilizing about 680 companies in the natural products industry who have made over 1,200 climate commitments spanning like packaging, renewable energy, um, transportation. I think they have nine, nine different action areas, but taking a very systems level approach to um, to climate action. They also, this past year, mobilized the largest business advocacy day for climate action basically in history. And so this was a virtual advocacy day in the, in the middle of COVID. And then more recently, um, they've been working with, I think we are still in, to basically get another signatory of a couple hundred companies to basically pitch to the new administration that, look, you have billions of dollars represented here, and if you can partner with us, um, also plug, public-private partnerships are the way, um, but if you can partner with Public us, there are ways to, to really aggregate the impact of the business community and support you know local and national resilience when it comes to climate change.
0: What does that mean, public-private partnership?
1: It basically just means working with municipalities or working with NGOs when you're a business, right? Like there are definitely areas of expertise that NGOs capitalize on where thinking about like when I was at Justin's, we knew that pollinators are in decline. 42% of pollinators are dying off every year and almond orchards require pollinators to, <laughs> to basically be a business. Why, so-
0: Why are they dying?
1: Oh, okay. What are the four P's? Um, Pathogens, pests, poor forage, and pesticides. (laughs) Yeah. So, and there obviously there are things within your supply chain that you can do there, right? Like you can integrate more um, native bees, like the blue orchard bee, which was a project we were working on in Fresno. Um, There are ways that you can do it too with you know purchasing organic products instead of conventional and then you know that pesticides aren't being directly used on the on the farms that you're sourcing from and there are also ways too to like build supplier codes of conduct and really like inform your supplier base around their impact whether that's you know climate and scope three or whether that's you know aligned with some other sustainability pillars that you have within your your company but working within your supply chain and working with local partners on the ground, especially nonprofits like for us we worked with Xerxes in the California almond orchards and in Boulder we worked with growing gardens around pollinator conservation and we bring out the staff and volunteer and get everybody really like integrated into the national work we were doing with a local partner so that's a little little example.
0: That's amazing. So I want I want to level with you here for a second so, I don't come from any sort of I love the nature. I love hiking. I don't come from any sort of science or sustainability background. I didn't have much interest in this topic at all. But I have this real estate business where 50% of my net commissions are donated to fight climate change. And the reason I do that is because I'm deeply concerned with what's going on. I want to have a family. I want to have a sustainable society where we can all live and prosper. And the re- the kind of the, the, I wanted to start a podcast because it's fun and it's good networking opportunity. but the, the point of the show has really turned into me trying to find the solution, the solution which doesn't really exist, to yeah. climate change. So I'm, I'm curious what your personal thoughts are as far as a, a, a way to fix something that's like needs to get done like today. And I, you know there's, I see it as three different large entities as like people and nonprofits corporations and then governments. So I was just curious what your thoughts are on what what you think is the best path forward.
1: Yeah. And I mean, having all the stakeholders at the table is essential, right? Like it took generations and decades and so many people to get to where we are today in terms of our global emissions. So it's going to require just as much input and work to reverse that. Um, and I think too, I'm a big believer in sort of a, a local regional approach, right? Like there are ways for you to work on the ground level on a small scale, figure out what's right and then grow it from there. Um, I think too, if you look at like the city of Denver and the city of Boulder, they've both set pretty strong climate goals. Um, for my master's program, we reviewed like Denver's mobility plan and their climate action plan, their 80, or 80% or 80 reduction by 2050 of their, their climate emissions in the city. And so I think that's a really big part of the city's setting very like progressive, proactive goals and trying to work from there. And I mean, that spans everything from like investing in electric infrastructure to diversifying your energy portfolio, like for you too and your scope of work, you like green design and, and finding all of these ways to, to like transform the built environment into a solution, ra- like a carbon sink rather than a carbon mm-hmm. suck, basically. Yeah, so yeah. how can we create more green spaces? So it's like, city design is an important part, producer responsibility when it comes to businesses is a very important part, but also all of the due diligence of a business. And if we're thinking just about packaging, it's for nothing if you're not finding ways to advocate to reinvent the infrastructure, if you're not educating your consumers, if you're not really using like the advocacy of your brand to drive forward that change. So it's so many pieces and it's circular model, it's systems level, it's like totally integrated and complicated. I hate the
0: complexity of it.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's definitely a complex
0: system. Yeah. Um, why do you think networking is so important when it comes to this issue?
1: Oh, because you can't do it alone. We always talk about radical collaboration. And I, I would say the, the things that I've been able to accomplish in my career are definitely a function of working with others. And Just finding no, and like thinking about when I was at Justin's, I'm tasked with like finding new sustainable packaging for our entire portfolio. And I've never done any of this before. I've just only ever read about it on paper with school. And so, what did I do? I put together a sustainable brand summit with 100 plus leaders and brought together like experts and speakers and started a working group. And I mean, I did all of this because I wanted to learn, but I knew that I wasn't alone in wanting to learn and wanting to find a pathway to action. So, I think that that's a good sort of micro example of how we can bring people together and do more and like, you know, the rising tide raises all ships. Um, so for us to like NDAs and things like that aren't really on the table when we're having these conversations. It's very much like a co model.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I, I agree with that. That's very interesting. How do you do all this stuff? I'm really curious, even with COVID, like what, what's your weekly workflow look like?
1: Um, busy. Yeah, very busy. I I would say for the past two years I've probably been working, you know, fifty to sixty hours a week and it's spread across multiple jobs and a master's program. And um, I was serving on three boards of directors, now I'm serving on two and but I feel like like I said, through collaboration and through working with like teams who are very passionate and very energetic and who are experts in their fields, like that's the way you can get stuff done. So I mean, like for Naturally Boulder, right, We, the board meets every month. We have different committees, and one of the committees that I'm on was the one that helped to develop the Sustainability Forum. And, you know, as, are were, we're thinking about expanding our programs. We're integrating sustainability across all of our offerings rather than creating a separate sustainability track. And the same holds true for OSC. And so with my work there, you know, a day in the life is, okay, how can I talk to private labs? How can I talk to public labs? How can I get shelf testing going again? How can I integrate new material partners or work with the Masters of Environment Program at CU to launch a plastics innovation page as like an open source resource? So, I mean, these are all definitely things that I do in my day job, and then just bring people together, right? And have shared learning opportunities. And, and the same goes with sustainable brands. We just hosted our, our first member discussion group around setting science-based targets, and so brought together a cohort of 50 to learn from Estee Lauder and to find ways to, to basically learn from them, share their practices, and find solutions together, so.
0: You're amazing. How, how did the, the pitch slam and autumn awards uh, thing go when well, it was like online for Naturally Boulder?
1: Yeah. It actually went really well and you know for us like that's one of our biggest events and normally we're so used to doing it in person and obviously we had to do a quick pivot to virtual and Fortunately, New Hope, which um, they're, they're a media firm too in the natural product sector, but they have a fantastic platform we were able to use, which is called Swap Card. And so we had virtual booths, we had a pitch, so it was like fantastic. And we did this really cool thing with an in, our innovation showcase normally is like 80 tables at the JCC and everybody gets to come and sample products. And since it wasn't a reality this year, we worked with one of our community members to create an innovation showcase sample box. And so people were actually to like opt into these boxes have a taste of the samples at home while viewing the virtual event and so i would also say with the pitch slam over the past few years and i think historically too like we're very focused on sustainable business models and sustainable entrepreneurship so when you see these companies there's always a mission-driven aspect whether they're donating a percentage of their profits whether they're sourcing regenerative ingredients like Pika floor last year um, so there's a lot inherent in that that's sustainable and climate focused too.
0: Yeah. So these companies are pitching their sustainable businesses to consumers at the event?
1: Uh, to consumers, to a panel of judges. And so, cool. you know, we, we get brokers, we get um, investors. We basically come together and try to have a, a good reflection of industry stakeholders who are making those sort of scale decisions when you're thinking about an entrepreneur. And so there's a piece of it that's a judge vote, but there's also a piece of it that is sort of a public opinion vote. And so, you know, the People's Choice Award, basically, for the Pitch Slam. So it's two elements there where they actually get FaceTime with investors. Um, and they have an opportunity to win a really cool prize pack, too, which helps them in terms of like goods, goods and services throughout the year to help grow their brand and define their purpose. And then also a spot at either Expo West or Expo East, which is like two of our biggest industry conferences, which is something that New Hope provides the winner.
0: Very, very cool. So much stuff going on. Hard to keep track of it all. I'd Mm -hmm. like, I'd love to transition here into just a general discussion on what would a regenerative society be versus the way we live at the moment.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, regenerative on a base level means that you're putting more into the system than you're taking from it, right? And Mm -hmm. it was funny, probably three years ago, I spoke on a panel at CU with. Kyle Garner, who was the CEO of Organic India at the time, he's also on the board of Naturally Boulder, so we're good friends. But we were talking to these students. They were, like, asking us questions about sustainability, and he's like, I hate the word sustainability. Sustaining just means we're sustaining the current state of affairs for the future generations. It's not finding a way to fix the problem. And so regenerative is really the solution. And starting with the scope of agriculture, right, you know, we have all of these carbon emissions, and so when you find – these conservation-based production models, and it's like for for the non-ag people, you have like um, you know lo- lower no-till farming, you're intercropping, you're rotating your crops, you're basically finding ways to replicate the natural system in a way that regenerates the land. You're drawing carbon down from the atmosphere, you're building soil health. I think it was Sa- the Savory Institute that released a study recently that we have 50 years of topsoil left. So it's really never been more important. To transition to regenerative farm farming and livestock practices
0: so what why is that what are we doing to the soil that makes it not growable anymore
1: so thinking about sort of like the agricultural belt in the us right like the midwest yeah. it's a very arid region but it's a temperate grassland so it has some of the richest so- soil profiles in the country <laughs> but we've been growing corn and soybean there on a large like agri- agribusiness dominated scale where we're, we're withdrawing the water from the Ogallala aquifers, we're reducing the aquifer capacity, we're dumping it full of like pesticides and fertilizers and that ends up running off all of the topsoil into the Gulf of Mexico causes eutrophication and harmful algae blooms. It's like a whole disastrous process. But basically the function of it goes back to like some of the fundamentals of permaculture. It's You shouldn't be growing on a large scale in an arid region, something that requires a lot of water. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not sustainable, right? Like with the resources that you have, you could not sustain the resilience of that product, that supply chain in a long-term perspective. And so that's what's happening. We're exploiting the land at basically the behest of an agribusiness system where we need to switch to something that's more of a permaculture oriented regenerative practice where we're farming the right things in the right areas. If you think about too, you know, I think most farmers are doing this in the mid in the Midwest, but you rotate corn and soybean because the legumes nitrify the soil and the corn takes a lot of soil. So that's something that they are doing, right? But when you're only rotating those two things year over year and it's not a regionally appropriate, um, plant, obviously you can see how things get complicated over time, especially with a growing population and so much, uh, so much subsidies from the government to, to grow those two crops, and when farmers only make $14,000 a year, how are you going Jesus. to incentivize them to switch to a more sustainable practice? So tough.
0: So, I have two questions. I guess the first one is what would happen in that 50 years, assuming we don't change anything, plus the temperature keeps going up, plus it gets hotter, plus like it's harder to grow things. Does that just mean there's no more land to grow food in the U.S.?
1: No, there would still be land to grow food, but it would be very like input intensive. And so as you're trying to grow it, I almost like think about what was that movie where Matt Damon was on Mars?
0: Oh, uh, The Martian.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: Where but he, it's he almost like that, right? Where he had to, to, he plants. had
1: to, sorry, yeah, he had to start from scratch and like build an entire soil profile from nothing. And so in that same lens, like if we're reducing the topsoil, which is where all the nutrients and the organic matter is, if we don't have that, then we have to basically supplement it with probably something synthetic, which is, again, not sustainable. So doesn't it seem like rather than trying to put a band aid on a gaping wound to heal the wound through regenerative Mm. practices?
0: Mm -hmm. So why are we growing these two crops? Is it about price efficiency or because I don't do I mean, I I guess I have a, a different diet than most people, but are most people eating a soy corn based diet?
1: Well, you just have to think about how many things soy and it? corn is is in. So that's one thing where it isn't a ton of products, and especially when you think conventional consumer packaged goods, like how much corn syrup is in cereals and grain based food, and how much soy is in like protein based foods. And so there's there's a lot of proliferation of those two ingredients within the food system. <coughs> excuse me. But also, if you think about it, generations of farmers have been farming these crops. They've been subsidized by the government. So there's a financial incentive for them to continue their current production models, because to them, it yields the maximum input for them for their viability. And so it's not just a simple question of, oh, everyone should switch to organic. Organic is a three-year transition period in a really costly certification. If you're a farmer making $14,000 a year, that's not a viable step for you. But again, when you think about like public-private partnerships, there are um, companies like Kashi who are doing a transitional program with some of their farmers. And in the meantime, in the three-year transition period, they're actually paying them a premium as if it was organic to help them make the transition to organic on that cropland. And we're starting to see that trend for regenerative agriculture too. And like companies like General Mills are creating regenerative pilot programs and training their farmers and, and basically finding ways to give them the resources and bridge the gap both financially and I think educationally to make the transition to more sustainable production models
0: it's so much information it's like trying to figure out like trying to solve climate change is like trying to figure out like world peace like trying to figure out like how to like fix everything
1: yeah Well, and it's so important for every company, too, to do basically like a materiality assessment and to understand, too. And I know, you know, greenhouse gas accounting is not an easy task, but I totally recommend companies of all sectors to do it because then you can identify the hotspots within your value chain and really like find the low hanging fruits because like for a tech company, obviously agriculture doesn't really weigh into that unless I guess they're using like a PLA for their packaging or something like a corn. Also PLA is, is, you know, a compostable packaging material. It's often corn corn or soy based. So sometimes, sometimes from wood pulp. Um, But again, that's, it just speaks to the proliferation of those two crops um, in our society.
0: Yeah, and I guess there's a lot more to talk about that, but we don't really have time. I guess just to con- kind of conclude here, I'd love to hear about uh, Sustainable Brands, the organization, how you got involved, and what's your work been like the last, seems like you started in November, right?
1: Yeah, I've been there officially for a month, so I'm not Woo-hoo! sure I'm not sure too much how, how much I could share, but um, I love it, and the reason I took the role is, for me, I wanted to learn more about what cross-sector applications there were for impact, and I think food systems will always be my passion and there's a lot of food and beverage and cpg companies within their network but they work with about 80 of the biggest global companies so like procter and gamble and unilever and like rei and target and ups and sonos and kohler and just there's so many different approaches and that's that's why i mentioned that materiality piece because you need to really understand the impact of your own value chain in order to create a plan but then what sustainable brands offers much like the other organizations that i've worked with before is a collaborative environment of like open sharing and thought leadership so you can really elevate each other's work and move forward together and so you know the scope of my role in you know running like member experience and member programs is to help make those connections to help cultivate meaningful content in workshops and discussion groups too we just launched like i said the first science-based target group this week um but that's kind of the essence of things is it's a really difficult journey to wrap your head around as we've touched on a few times definitely and so having somebody there to support you with like best practices shared resources things are that are kind of like tried and true so that you know i always say too the faster you fail the faster you can move on to something better and i think that the group is very good at kind of embodying that radical collaboration mentality
0: Cool. So what would you leave listeners who are kind of like me, who don't know too much about the topic with as far as how to proceed forward? Because these issues are so large scale, very important, very relevant right now, and can be just super overwhelming. How would you recommend people get involved if they're interested, but not knowledgeable?
1: Yeah, I mean, the biggest power we have is voting with our dollar. I mean, we don't have an opportunity to vote every day um, in an election, but we do vote every day when we purchase something. So trying to make more informed purchasing decisions. But like I said, the onus isn't just on the consumer, it's on the producers. So if you can be involved too with like your city or your state or your county's sustainability council, that's another great way. The city of Boulder is trying to advocate right now for a new compost facility out on 287. And I just signed a letter and sent it to my representatives. And so there are plenty of little things that you can do to make your voice heard and to help you learn more um, and really like use your power to advocate.
0: Yeah, and I think everyone should be trying to use their voice a little bit more, especially in the U.S. We have so much power and we really set the stage for the rest of the world. People will follow in our footsteps. So if you lead by example, just believe in what you're doing and keep going. I think uh, I think you can really make a big difference. So Alyssa, it was really a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for making time to join us this week.
1: Of course. Yeah, happy to help.
0: All right. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure, everyone. Hope everyone has a fantastic day and we will be back next Thursday, of course, for another episode. Take it easy, everyone peace out. Thanks so much for listening to Change in the Climate, a podcast hosted by Climate Change Realty, the most innovative real estate corporation ever conceptualized. Visit ccrboulder.com today.